0: morning. (laughs) Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Sharing in the peace that Christ affords is a tremendous privilege and being able to share his word with you this morning is an honor and a delight. Thank you Pastor Garrison and the elders for the invitation to bring God's Word yet again. I especially appreciate and enjoy being able to come to the Veritas family and see what God is doing and hearing of God's work in your midst. In an increasingly fractured society, the church of all places is the organism that pushes back against that fracturing. And whereas the world continues to come up with more and more categories that would divide us, we are the people that attest to the reality that Christ makes us one. Thank you for that continue living that out. As we seek to live a faithful life before the Lord, this text in Mark chapter 12 is instructive for us in living wisely in the world in which God has placed us as exiles, while at the same time living faithful under the Lordship of Christ. This text is a text that instructs us in those regards, gives us some practical instruction regarding taxes, but more importantly, leads us to a conclusion that impacts all of our lives. So let's read God's Word together, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, and I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 12, 13. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. God we ask that you would take your sacred and holy word and by your spirit illuminate our minds, open our hearts to believe and to live its truth. In Christ's name, amen. So we're continuing on, and I trust that you've been able to follow along in the series through the gospel according to Mark. And so when we come to verse 13 and we see the enemy's trap for Jesus, you understand that this is the same group of people that has been trying to attack Jesus and trap him. This is the they in verse 13. They sent to him refers several stories prior to the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the other religious leaders, these are Jesus' enemies. They've regularly tried to trap Jesus, they've regularly tried to ensnare him because Jesus has threatened their power, Jesus has threatened their identity, Jesus has threatened their comfort level with the, the world that they've created for themselves where they are the center and they're worshiping their own ways and they they after failing a couple of times they've decided to switch tactics a little bit and rather than coming straight at jesus with uh, an uppercut punch they're coming at jesus now and they're trying to trap him and so they get together two groups pharisees and herodians these are two groups this is a brilliant move of the enemy because both of these groups are powerful and yet they're powerful in their own domain. The Pharisees are a religious group of Jews who are adhering to God's law, and they're engaging in regular temple worship. And so the spiritually-minded folks of this day would have had immense respect for the Pharisees that Jesus called whitewashed tombs because of their hypocrisy. On the outside, they had everything together, but on the inside, they were corrupt. This is the Pharisees, but they get the Pharisees together along with, it says, some of the Herodians. Who are they? They're also Jews who are allied with the dynasty of Herod. And as allies of the dynasty of Herod, they've compromised some of their spiritual commitment and their law-keeping in order to procure the favor of the political government, the Romans, who ruled and reigned. So you've got these Pharisees and these Herodians who themselves are in opposition to one another. They're always fighting. They are bitter rivals. We have rivals in our day, of course, of sports teams. And sometimes that can get pretty intense. But this kind of rival was in real life. It impacted the way that they lived in tremendously significant ways. And so the enemies of Jesus got together. Because of their common enemy, they got together and collaborated, cooperated on trying to ultimately take Jesus down because of his threat to their way of life. And it says that they got together to trap him in his talk. This phrase of trapping is actually used in the original language to also refer to those who would trap game. And it made me think of this when I was studying this week and I learned of that connection of someone who was trying to snare an animal. For food or their hide or something like this. It made me think of my son who's with me, Elijah's here, and he put together this trap last week to trap some chipmunks, and so he made a ramp up to a five-gallon bucket and then created a lever on this uh, middle of this bucket and then planted some peanuts along the way, and sure enough, within just a couple of minutes, a chipmunk showed up, sniffed around, Ate the first peanut, the second peanut, the third peanut, got to the top. We thought he was going to outsmart us because he was reaching across the lever that would have sank him to the bottom of the bucket. But then eventually, it gave way and he dropped to the bottom of the bucket. The trap was successful. However, the only thing we did not account for was that this chipmunk had incredible jumping abilities and he got out of that bucket. And so we're back to the drawing board. And I was talking to my 86-year-old grandmother who has squirrels living in her attic. She told me this week, just Friday, she told me she's caught 14 squirrels. And so I'm sending Elijah to grandma's house to get some lessons on trapping. This is the kind of thing going on here, but at a real-life level. They're trying to trick Jesus and trap him in his talk. They're ultimate goal is the same that it has been, and that is that they would take Jesus down. You see, the problem is that Jesus had a lot of popularity with the people, and as his credibility through all of his miracle working, through all of his teaching, through his integrity, through all of these things, and including his claim to divinity, he was turning upside down the worlds of all of his enemies. And so they have this new approach. Rather than the uppercut, they want to trap him, they want to entice him, and so they flatter him. Look at verse 14. They come to Jesus, they've hatched their plan, they say to him, teacher, this would have been a a term of great respect, it's used often in the New Testament, to refer to Jesus as he interpreted and applied God's word. Teacher. We know that you are true. (laughs) They're going to unpack four things here. Number one, teacher, we know that you are true. You are a person of great integrity, trustworthiness. You accurately teach us about the world and who we are and what's wrong with the world and, and what the solution is to the world. Secondly, we know that you do not care about anyone's opinion. This is a very interesting phrase. They're saying of Jesus as they're coming to him in their spirit of flattery, they're saying, you are your own person, and you don't cater your message based on whether people like you or not. It's a very interesting phrase, this third one, when they say you are not swayed by appearances. It literally means you don't look at people's faces. Now, we know that Jesus was very relational, very personable, but the figure of speech here, the expression is, That Jesus didn't change his message based on somebody smiling at him or frowning at him. It doesn't matter whether or not people think that what he's saying is right or wrong. Jesus is going to give it to them just like it is. And they acknowledge this about him. Jesus is not a fearer of man. He is giving them the truth as it is. Their body language doesn't sway him. And then, fourthly, in their flattery, they tell us that Jesus is one who truly teaches the way of God. This is a parallel thought with the phrase, the first phrase, and that is when they said, Jesus, we know that as a teacher, you are true. They're speaking about his being. And then, here at the tail end, they bookend it with, You also teach the ways of God. Not only are you true, but you teach and show what is true speaking to his doing and in this fourfold attempt at flattery, they are trying to disarm Jesus with some kind platitudes that they really don't believe. Jesus is the most wise human being to ever live and being the most wise to ever live, it tells us that he discerned their hypocrisy in verse 15. Jesus knew what was going on. He knew that all of these different qualities and descriptions of him were given from an insincere place. And he had seen this play itself out. They had as their goal personal gain. And friends, this is ultimately the distinction between a true compliment and then flattery. Would you agree? Flattery is when somebody may even say something true about you, you look nice today. Well, you might actually look nice, but they might be saying you look nice because they want something in return. And that was their exact motivation here, personal gain. The destruction of Jesus meant that their power could continue. So after flattering Jesus, they give him the question that's been cooking for some time. This, in fact, this question, it was not microwaved a few moments before. This question that they ask of Jesus, in which they're trying to trap him, is a question that had existed and been answered and been dealt with many times up to this point. So the brief history of this question of, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, should we pay them or should we not, has a long history. And it's striking as well that the long history is directly tied to the identity of these two parties that got together, which is, I believe, why Mark tells us specifically it was the Pharisees and the Herodians. You see, if Jesus would have answered this question in the affirmative, yes, pay taxes, then the Pharisees would have danced a happy dance because that would have meant that all of their people who were upset about Roman oppression... And restriction of their religious freedoms, the Pharisees would have said, see Jesus is a Roman supporter. And the Pharisees were hoping he'd say that so that he would lose popularity with the people and thus his power would would be lessened. So the Pharisees are kind of hoping for that kind of an answer so that he can lose popularity. Meanwhile, the Herodians, of course, are allies with the state. They are allies of the dynasty of Herod and the Roman rule, and so if Jesus would have said, no, don't pay taxes, well, that itself is an act of insurrection and revolt, and the Herodians would have squished it, and they would have had grounds at that time to actually execute Jesus because of his discouragement of paying taxes. In fact, there's historical example of people doing that very thing in answering this question, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Does Rome deserve to get our money? They said publicly, no. And those insurrectionists were executed. Well, they've got this question that's been simmering in the crockpot for many generations. And now they think it's time to spring this on Jesus. Let's get people from both sides and we will really fix him this time, the enemy's trap. Well, verse 15 through 17 teach us about Jesus' triumph. So the trap has been set, and we see Jesus' brilliance shine forth. It's not only true, we're going to see several things here in this text about Jesus' triumph. It's not only true that Jesus outsmarted them, outwitted them, outdebated them, but it's also true that Jesus teaches them something that they reject again, but he teaches and instructs us with something that goes far beyond the simple answer of, yes, you should pay taxes. So I want you to see that from the text. Both the simple, straightforward answer Jesus gives, but also in the way that he gives the answer and the answer itself, it instructs us about things far more significant than whether we should pay taxes. So let's take a look at Jesus' response. In verse 15, it tells us Jesus knew their hypocrisy. So he knew he was in a trap. He knew that if he was going to eat the next peanut, he was going to go down into the bucket. So this is his response, why put me to the test? This is a rhetorical question of course, he's not looking for an answer, he knows why they're putting him to the test and he knows that they're going to continue to test him and they're going to continue to try to take him down, they are indeed his enemies. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, if I could paraphrase it, it would be like Jesus saying, do we really have to go through all this stuff again? You guys continue to challenge me. I continue to show you how foolish you are, how wise I am, how you should lack authority, but I possess all authority. Are we really doing this again? Well, Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So there are a few different ideas about why Jesus asked them to bring him a denarius. A denarius was a coin, the most common coin of this time in first century and it was the size of our dime, our Roosevelt dime. It was a small coin, a silver coin, and it was equivalent to a day's wage. So if you worked for a day at an average job, you would get one denarius. And there was a tax, and it was one denarius. And it was a regular tax that one was to give. And The theory about Jesus asking them to show him a denarius is explained by a couple plausible ideas. One of them is that Jesus was poverty-stricken, materially speaking, and Jesus said, can you show me one of your denarius coins because he didn't have one in his pocket. I think that's plausible, possible. Maybe his disciples didn't have a denarius either. They were all materially poor, but I think that the significance, that this is my conclusion, My interpretation and understanding of it could be wrong here. But it seems to me that Jesus was asking them to bring him a denarius because he wanted them to demonstrate physically by pulling out a denarius out of their pockets, he wanted to demonstrate that they themselves were using the currency of the day and they themselves were already submitting to the rule and the reign of the Roman Empire in some measure. You see, when they pull that denarius out, and when Jesus gives them the question about the image, the likeness, and the inscription, what he was pointing out about the coin was that on the front side of the coin was the image of the ruler with an inscription that said, of Caesar, with the inscription that said that he essentially was divine, that this false God that they had put forward was ruling and reigning and for a Jew to submit himself or herself to that meaning of that coin was to commit crimes against the law of God. Even this word Jesus has used in verse 16 when they brought one and he says, whose likeness. This would have been one of those trigger words. Do you remember the second commandment of the Ten Commandments? You shall not make any graven image nor bow down to the image. This was in violation of, at the most simple basic level, this is in violation of commandment number two, that they would have made an image that most people in that day would have worshipped Caesar as divine. And so when they pull that out of their pocket, there's a little bit of an incriminating effect that happens there. That's my take on it to know whether or not that's really true or not, you can talk to Pastor Garrison later. I'm not sure exactly. The scripture doesn't tell us why Jesus asked for their denarius, but nonetheless, he was using it as an object lesson to teach his point. He says, let me look at it. I want to I'm sure he had seen it many times, he knew what was on it, but he said, I want to look at it and I want to discern something from this cultural artifact itself. So what is it that he draws out? Well, verse 16 tells us, they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this, and they said, Caesar's. So this is where in this statement, we see Jesus' triumph in the brilliance of the statement, but also in the meaning of the statement. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They were amazed at him because they were struck with the fact that Jesus was able to avoid their trap and yet at the same time bring a convicting word that pierced their hearts. You see. Jesus' response here, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, it literally means if it belongs to Caesar, then return it back to Caesar. This this translation of rendering to Caesar, it literally means to return to its point of origination. Give it back to him if he owns it. So who minted the coins? Well, Caesar did. The Roman Empire did. So who's... Who, who does this currency belong to? It belongs to the Roman government. Well, then, if the government requires that their currency be returned back to them, then do so. So, you could think of a modern-day example. Our currency system is very different than it was back then. But nonetheless, you could think of, perhaps, the United States Mint. Who is it that produces our currency in the United States of America? Well, it's the mint, the U.S. mint. So if they wanted a dollar back, which they do ask that if there's damaged dollars, or maybe they're (laughs) worn out beyond recognition, then they actually request that you send them back so that they can reissue a new dollar, right? And there's kind of a similar thing going here. Jesus is saying, they created this currency, and so they own it the image of Caesar is on the front. The inscription that Caesar is divine is on this coin. So give it back to him. So in short answer, Jesus was saying, yes, pay the taxes. I should pause here for just a moment because I think if there's any really simple, straightforward, practical application from this text, it would be pay taxes. And if you are one who you think, well, the government doesn't steward my taxes very well. That's not justification for circumventing Jesus' instruction here. If you're one who says, well, I would use that money better, I'm going to evade my taxes in some way, not justification. We should pay taxes. So that's the most simple, straightforward application of this, and that is, it's so simple. And yet, I've found that in my years of pastoral ministry and working other jobs as well, that's actually kind of profound. Pay your taxes. <laughs> Didn't you know there are a lot of Christians, perhaps you're one of them, and you don't feel like you owe the government anything, and so you actively seek to suppress income and hide it from them. Not in the loophole kind of a way. I think if they give us provision to pay less, I'm all in that camp. I'm all in favor of those kinds of things. Uh, so don't misunderstand me. But to illegally hide income from them, I think that goes directly in the face of what Jesus is saying here. So there's greater significance, though, even in addition to that application, there's greater significance to what Jesus says. Follow along here the last phrase. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now truly, this last phrase is the most impactful. Truly this last phrase, Jesus's final few words in his response are of utmost importance. Because what Jesus is reminding them of is the same kind of a thing he's been reminding them and teaching them of for so many times, so many lessons. So many lectures, so many parables, Jesus is confronting them on a regular basis saying, you can't just fulfill the letter of the law and expect to be right with God. In other words, he's saying, you could pay taxes and you should, but he's reminding them of the truth found in Genesis 127, that God's image, God's likeness, God's inscription is written on us. When he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's saying because Caesar's inscription and likeness is on the coin, give the coin back to Caesar. But there's a sphere and a domain of lordship that knows no end, and that is the lordship of Christ. I love the the saying of Abraham Kuyper. He said, there is not one square inch over which the Lord does not cry out, Mine. The first implication of Jesus' statement here is that because you are made in God's image and because you bear the inscription of God Himself, you belong to God. Your life, its very existence, the words that you say, the actions that you take, the vocation that you enter, the family that you raise, the spouse that you marry. All of the things about us that make up who we are, they belong to God, and Jesus' command is that we would each one return back to God the things that belong to Him. And ultimately, what is it that belongs to God? It is first and fundamentally you and me in our lives, but by extension it's also true that the Lordship of Christ extends to everything. Look with me at a couple of places in your copy of God's Word if you could flip to Psalm chapter 24. I want to show you a couple of summary statements. Psalm 24 verse 1 provides some of the backfill for Jesus' statement here when he says, give back to God the things that belong to God. Well what belongs to God? Psalm 24, 1 answers that question. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The Lord's ownership of all things is entrusted to us in some small measure that you and I would steward the things that God has entrusted to us. This is the same teaching in Genesis 1. One of the implications of the fact that we're made in God's image is that he gave us the creation mandate, and the cultural mandate that we would take and steward, we would refine the raw materials of nature that God has given us, and in the process of refining the raw materials of nature, we would create culture that would bring glory and honor and worship, attention to God and ascribe worth to His name. These commands that we see here in Psalm 24 and Psalm 115. There, throughout the Old Testament and the New, the Lordship of Christ in Colossians chapter 1 could not be more clear that Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. of his cross. You see, when Jesus' words came to their ears and it pierced their hearts, they understood that their lives belonged to God and they also should have picked up on the fact that Jesus himself was not just giving this as a teaching to give your life as an act of worship to God, but Jesus himself was about to live out this very thing in the most profound way possible. You see, Jesus' entire life, he said these words, and he lived them out, that he was the image of the invisible God, and he was living out this truth that he was rendering to God the things that are God's. Jesus even said, I don't do what I want to do, I do what the Father wants. I am here on a mission to accomplish the mission that the Father has given to me. You see, it, it would be easy for you and for me to take the religious approach, which is what our pride in our hearts naturally takes us to. The pride in our hearts says, well, if I could just do enough for God and I could render to God all of the things that he's given me, if I could give God enough money, if I could give God enough of my time, if I could give God enough of my skills and talents, and the list goes on. If I could render back to God everything that I am and have, then he would accept me. The point of Jesus' life was that because you and I could not and did not and will not of our own power and volition render to God what is the rightful worship he is due, Jesus did it in our place. Jesus' life is an execution of this last half of this verse, and he did so as our substitute. Jesus rendered, he returned back to God his own life. And now the logic of the gospel, the logic of the good news works like this. If you and I will turn from our attempts to fulfill the law and render to God the things he expects, if you and I will turn from our own efforts that would lead to more pride and heap more judgment on ourselves, and if instead of that we will turn to Christ then Jesus' payment and his rendering and returning back to God, the things that are God, him doing that on our behalf becomes ours. And when we fail to give God the worship due to his name, we don't have to slide off into a place of despondency. We come to Christ afresh and we say, thank you, Jesus, for rendering to God what was truly due to God, which is everything. Thank you for doing that in my place. And Jesus, thank you for giving me new life that now seeks to worship you. Thank you now, as Romans 12 says that Brian led us in reading earlier, thank you for letting me present my body as a living sacrifice to you, holy and acceptable through Christ. As Romans 6.13 teaches us that we are to give ourselves, we are to offer ourselves as, not as instruments of sin, but as instruments of righteousness. The profundity of Jesus' statement here is quite simple, and that is that we would give everything to God because Jesus himself gave everything to God. So if you're wanting to believe and live God's word, and not just marvel at Jesus. Not just, as uh, Matthew Henry said, not just to commend the wit of a sermon, or in my paraphrase, not just to admire the brilliance of Jesus, but that you would live this out. As Matthew Henry says, that you would be commanded by the divine laws of a sermon. Then yes, you would walk away from here, And you would pay taxes, but more significantly, you would acknowledge the sovereign lordship of Christ and you would acknowledge His priestly work on your behalf to render to God everything that God deserves and to bring glory and honor to His name. And then in a life of gratitude to Him, you would live your life following in Jesus' steps. There is much more to say about this In just a moment I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord as we prepare for the table. I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord to help us to live our lives in this kind of a way, offering our lives as acts of worship to him. There's so much more about this. I encourage you to read some some ideas out there on the two kingdoms. There are some authors I would commend to you throughout church history. There's Augustine. There's John Calvin on the two kingdoms view. There's a contemporary named Michael Horton. And there's a man named Abraham Kuyper who has some really great things to say about how we navigate life as citizens of this kingdom of God while we live as exiles here on earth. So I commend these to you. And for additional reading or specific titles, you can also see our resident... I feel like Pastor Garrison has kind of this spiritual gift of bibliography. Uh, I tell him that from time to time, but Pastor Garrison's done a lot of reading on this, has some great recommendations for you, as well as Dr. Mark Lawson. This text has so much implication for us. This morning, I encourage you not to leave God's word without committing to believing and to living and acting. So let's pray together to that end. God we thank you for this story that Mark has recorded for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by which we can see that Jesus Lord of all worked his way through the enemy's trap and in the end he triumphs not only because he is the all wise one who cannot be trapped but because he is the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe. And so this very morning, would you by your spirit take us to a place in our hearts where we humbly submit to his lordship and that we render our lives, we return our lives back to you. Help us to live on a daily basis, an hourly and moment by moment basis in this reality that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, by your grace, help us to glorify you with our bodies. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.